Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And uh, for those of you fairly new to the podcast, uh, what is the show about? Well, we talk about the top legal stories of the week, uh, hence the name Too Many Lawyers. We've got too many judges, too many legislators, too many lawyers of all stripes. So that's where we're coming from. We're uh, both legal analysts, Connor and I. Uh, I am a boomer, a libertarian. Connor is a millennial progressive, and so we deal with these issues of the day, hopefully with respect and no food fights. So today's top stories, uh, first of all, should we force jurors to be vaccinated for COVID? And also, should we, while we're at it, try to figure out if they're telling the truth by using polygraph machines with really, you know, shocking devices, just like in those psychological Ooh, experiments? I like that. That's yeah. an extra wrinkle. I hadn't even considered that. So what do we do about jurors? Judicial review is our second topic. Is it time to revisit the power of the Supreme Court to declare things That's right. This podcast is about to upset Marbury versus Madison, ladies and well, gentlemen. Well, now that we've got this creepy six to three conservative majority on the court, <laughs> a lot of people are actually thinking about this issue. So we're going to be getting into that topic as well. Uh, we also are going to be talking about uh, the issue of uh, what happens when a nude burglar uh, declares that he owns the house that he's in. Love it. Yeah. Uh, Can't is, wait. This is a serious topic. We're, we're <laughs> going to get into that as well. But also, our, our main uh, third topic is uh, the ACLU. Has it gone soft on the First Amendment? Uh, this is the group that supported the right of Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois, where many Holocaust survivors lived. This is back in the 60s and 70s. They have changed their tune, uh, according to many observers. We're going to get into all that. We also will get uh, into um, our, our favorite feature now, Guess the Verdict, where Connor um, gets to uh, hear the facts of an unusual case, and we'll see if he can keep his perfect record going. My guessing, favorite part, absolutely. As soon as I outcome. miss one, it won't be my favorite segment anymore. You'll but... still have a high batting average. Okay, you'll, you'll be that's the true. Ty Cobb of uh, the new millennium, as if anybody knows who Ty Cobb is. Of course we do. This The podcast listeners are all baseball fans. Maybe, maybe. All right. So, um, by the way, um, I saw a uh, an ad by Liz Warren on TV today 
uh, talking about the recall of Governor Gavin Newsom in uh, California. And no shock here. She's very much against it, thinks it's a, just a bunch of Trump Republicans. Naturally. I, you know, it struck me, Connor, I'd be interested in your thoughts. It struck me that maybe it's not such a good idea to have Liz Warren on TV in California uh, talking about the recall and, and helping Gavin Newsom because— I think the only way Newsom loses is if there's Democrat complacency. Yep. You know, this is September 14 vote. I mean, who's going to care about it? Or yeah, really who's going to show up? It? Yeah. Whereas Republicans, you know, they, you got to light a fire under them. You got to really have 100 yeah. percent turnout. Yeah. And that's their chance. And if you have Liz Warren in the in the mix, aren't the Democrats going to basically ignore Liz? But when the Republicans see her, it's just going to be Inflame. like throwing gasoline Tensions. on the fire. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. <laughs> The same could be said of any uh, politician on the left who has um, a moderately exciting uh, persona for Democratic voters. Like Bernie Sanders. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, if you put out a Bernie Sanders, uh, he's a a character who's actually pretty divisive on the left. A lot of liberals don't like Bernie Sanders. A lot of liberals now don't like Liz Warren. I think the fact that she actually has some uh, controversial positions that she's taken that aren't far left enough, and that she's got a history of when she was a law professor and this cookbook of, of, uh, that she put out with her husband and all this stuff that, that make her kind of an inflammatory figure. I think that that it focuses everybody's attention, left and right. And so the more attention uh, the, the race gets, uh, the better for the Democrats. Because like we said, uh, like you said, the only way they lose is if only one side shows up, the Republicans. And right. that's unlikely to happen. Uh, so the more attention that's focused on the race, the better, even though it's, you know, a, a recall election. It's strange. And according to a lot of polls, it's kind of tightening up. A, a recent poll said that 50 percent want to retain Governor Newsom. Forty seven percent would like to kick him out. Now, that's close. That's sort of almost within the margin of error. Mm. And then when you look at who's ahead among the opponents, the the Republicans. So, for example, I think we chatted about this last week. Larry Elder, the radio syndicated radio host, he's ahead with 16 percent in the polls. And everybody else, the, the guy that has the bear, John Cox and Falconer, the former mayor of San Diego and Caitlyn Jenner, they're all about 10 percent. Although one thing, if 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 the ballot had Caitlyn and Bruce Jenner, maybe they could add the two totals together to help her. It's a possibility. Uh, probably not going to fly. No. But anyway, uh, to give you an idea, Connors, to just uh, how difficult it is for the Republicans to prevail here, I looked up the registration in California. In California, 46% of voters are Democrats, mm-hmm. 24% are Republicans. It's basically two to one. 10 yeah. million Democrats, about 5 million Republicans. Yeah. Then you've got independents at um, 6%, and no preference, people who refuse to declare a party, a pretty independent themselves, that's 24%. So you got about 30%, almost a third of the electorate that just is either, you know, a third party going A lot of political scientists look at those numbers in a place like California. Now, an independent in Ohio might well be an independent, somebody who votes for either side, right. who swings back and forth because there's not as much social pressure. But in a place like California, if you identify as a Republican, you may get some flack from that 46% of registered Democrats and the rest of the folks who aren't registered maybe, but are just liberal uh, Californians 
who say, you know, you shouldn't be registered as a Republican. It's uh, the Republican Party is on the wrong side of most issues. So, you know, why do you why do you sign up with them? But if you're a single issue voter where the Republican Party serves you or you're just kind of a conservative person, big picture generally, you might want to avoid the scrutiny of your uh, you know, fellow Californians by being an independent um, or by uh, being a no preference um, when you're really much more likely to vote Republican. And so the numbers are kind of skewed. I think uh, everybody kind of recognizes, yeah, obviously the Democrats are crushing it numerically, but it's closer than that precise breakdown shows. Yeah, it's t- with those numbers, to me, it's surprising that it's only 50% yes and 47% no. I mean, Newsom only a, a three-point edge, especially when you look at the trend in the last decade. I looked it up 10 years ago. The Democrats were at 44% in mm-hmm. California. Now they are at, um, according to this survey, was down one point to 43%. Right. The Republicans are way down from 31% 10 years ago to only 24% now. So it's like they're just extinct. They're dinosaurs. And yet, you know, there's some sort of groundswell against a lot of people. Maybe it's the French laundry incident. Maybe it's the whole masking thing. But there are a lot of folks in California who are not real happy with Gavin Newsom. Yeah, I think that we're facing, obviously, unprecedented times and problems that no one has good solutions to. We've seen bad outcomes happen. We see Delta variant means cases are rising and people are frightened and they want things to happen. They want things to get fixed. They want, you know, solutions. And there may may not be any solutions. And if there are solutions, they're very unpopular. Things like everybody wearing masks all the time, indoors and outdoors, no matter what the activity. People staying home more often than they want to. People not going out and living their lives the way they'd like to after almost, well, a year and a half of lockdown or partial lockdown and on and off lockdowns. These are unpopular solutions. If you've got you know, a war going on. The only reason that the uh, the wartime president, uh, you know, that, that he or she sort of stands strong and, and people say don't, things like don't change horses in midstream is because they see that the, the war effort is working and they see that the solutions, the sacrifices are being asked to make make sense to them. If your general is losing the war, right. it's a much harder sell to say, well, don't change horses in midstream. And a lot of people see uh, the rise of variants and uh, a grim future, and they say, is Gavin Newsom really winning this war? I mean, I don't think anybody else is going to do any better than Gavin Newsom. That's not true. I think there are a lot of people who could do better than Gavin Newsom, but we'll never elect those people. I don't think any mainstream Republican or Democratic candidate has any ideas that are better than what Gavin Newsom is doing, because Gavin Newsom is generally listening to the scientists and the CDC uh, and balancing that against the corporate interests that run politics to a large degree, and he's saying, okay, well, we're... And occasionally blowing off some steam at the French Laundry. Right. We're willing to accept this level of suffering and death because it'll help the economy. And there's no major candidate for either party uh, that is willing to do anything other than that. So recall him. Don't recall him. Is it really going to change the lives of uh, most Americans, whether he or a different Democrat is in office? Now, if they put somebody like Larry Elder or John Cox or some other hardcore right wing or the bear as a write-in candidate some sort of hard hardcore right-wing candidate uh, wins could that change life for the average american i mean average californian absolutely that would change something and i think dramatically for the worse 
But any random Democrat replacing Newsom, he's basically an empty chair. So you mentioned COVID. When we return, we're going to talk about uh, vaccines and whether jurors should be forced to be vaccinated. So stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. And Connor's going to tell you how to rate and subscribe to the podcast. Yeah, so check us out on whatever podcast platform you use. We've got a page on those platforms. Uh, just like every other podcast, if you go to Apple Podcasts and search for Too Many Lawyers, spelled out T-O-O, Many Lawyers, um, and you want to leave us a review if you like the show, give us five stars. Uh, talk about how great we are in the comment section. We read every single comment. We really appreciate them. Um, yeah, and uh, every comment uh, helps. And even if you get us on one platform, maybe go to the other platforms and leave us a review there, too. Maybe subscribe to us on both. Nobody has to know. <laughs> we'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So a week or so ago, Connor, we talked about whether jurors should be vaccinated. The yep. judge was toying with this idea. And uh, the defense lawyer said, oh, Your Honor, wait a minute. If you if you force uh, everybody to be vaccinated and exclude those who are not vaccinated, then that's not a cross-section of society. Right. We, in other words, we think that the non-vaccine people are going to vote for us. So right. that, that was a kerfuffle in that courtroom. But it, it kind of relates to the larger issue. In the last week or so, we're really seeing a push for vaccines. Uh, Joe Biden's getting tough on uh, federal employees. Well, not as tough as he should be, but he is at least saying you've either got to get vaxxed or submit to testing and do yeah. distancing, which is so something. Why not? Why not go in the direction of mandatory vaccines, 100 percent vaccination as an alter alternative to basically turning society and, and our mode of interaction upside down in terms of social distancing and masking. I mean, if we could somehow turbocharge the percentage of people who were vaccinated, wouldn't we be able to kind of return to normalcy with, with some confidence? And, and if we wanted to do that, why not go the route of Obamacare? Now, stick with me on I'm this. I'm listening. People uh, were told by Congress, great news, Obamacare is here. You have to buy a policy great of insurance. Yeah. You must buy it. Mm -hmm. And if you can't afford it, we'll pay for it through right. tax dollars. So that's the rule. Uh, people sue. Oh, my God, this is America. You can't force us to buy a policy of insurance. And Chief Justice Roberts saved Obamacare by right. saying, you know, it's not like we're forcing you to do something. We're not forcing you to eat broccoli. We're just saying that there's going to be a tax or a penalty if you don't buy the policy of insurance. Yeah. We tax people for all sorts of things. So you're True. saved, Obamacare. Mm -hmm. Everybody's happy. No pre-existing conditions, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward. Why don't we just say to everybody, you must get a vaccine, just like you must buy an Obamacare policy. Yeah. And if you don't, it's going to cost you $3,000 on your taxes. So if you can't prove that by September 1, 2021, you got vaccinated, next time your taxes are due, April 2022, you got to pay an extra $3,000. That would frighten everybody into going out and getting vaccinated. Like Absolutely. Pe people are getting vaccinated because you give them a joint or you give them a, a, a donut a donut or Walmart yeah. a gift card and so on. What's wrong with that idea? I mean, I'm with you. I'm on board. I think that vaccines, uh, because we know that they are safe, um, are uh uh, such an unbelievable net good for society that it's and you'd the let sort people, of thing. If you had a religious or medical uh, exemption, I'd say we exempt those folks. If, I, if it's legitimately religious, if, you can't just invent a church. I think if you have a legitimate medical exemption where the vaccine is such a net negative for you that we could carve out a small group of people <clears throat> who are exempt from having to get the vaccine and still get to the point of what we'd call herd immunity, where people you know, are, are where we're not going to suffer from future 
variants, the Epsilon variant and the Gamma variant and the Zeta variant that come out after this that are more infectious than the Delta variant and happen to kill more people, right. but like on a longer time scale so that it, is, it, it still spreads among all these people. I mean, this, that, it could be a planet killer, right? That's the end of the human race if, if that sort of variant pops up. This is an, an absolute do or die must move situation. The Andromeda and, strain. Yeah, exactly. And this is... Uh, you can make an exemption uh, for people who have medical uh, objections and still get to uh, that number, likely, and, and beat this thing. You probably can't make a religious exemption for a couple of reasons. One, too many people will claim it, and it's very hard to police in a way that a medical exemption is not hard to police. And two... People who will claim a medical exemption—I mean, sorry, a religious exemption—very frequently, frequently live and work and interact with other people who will claim that exemption, and therefore there will be clusters through which, and back and forth and around inside which that cluster, right. you will get a variant that spreads and kills people and brews a new a new variant, and and then goes out and kills the rest of the world. So you can't hand them out like candy. You have to hand them out to, oh, this one person ha- is a you know cancer survivor and their uh, immune system is shot um, and therefore they, uh, you know, uh, can't take the vaccine because it won't do anything anyway. It'll prompt an immune response, but there's no immune system to fight or to, to learn from the vaccine. So what's the point? That person can get a medical exemption, uh, but because they're not surrounded by a bunch of people who all have that exact same problem that could be uh, you know, a super spreader cell, right? Whereas a religious exemption can't. So there's this big, big difference between a medical exemption and a religious exemption on for that reason. You may be right. I mean, I, I don't know whether a legitimate religious exemptions supported by current dogma sure. would be one Enough. third of one percent right. or 12 percent right. or right. halfway in between. And, and as you say, and that's an objective question that we have to be able to answer. But you're right. There's nothing in the law that says that the government can't mandate a vaccine as much as Madison Cawthorn would like to get up on the Senate floor or the House floor as he did yesterday and make bl- blustering uh, you know speeches about freedom and tyranny and how this is quote medical apartheid to demand that his senate's uh, his house uh, staff get vaccinated or rather just did they disclose whether they are vaccinated he calls that medical apartheid right, right. because he's insane. He's completely unhinged. All he cares about is political power. He thinks that everything will basically work out, that he comes from such an incredibly privileged position that nothing can touch him. He's totally Teflon, right? That is who you're dealing with. You're dealing with completely political animals who just want power and will grasp at any narrative that gets them on, uh, you know, the the highlight reel of the political talk shows because they're the most uh, inflammatory person in the room. That is the problem. That is the person you have to get through. That is uh, who works in the opposition as as a political reactionary and loves being in the opposition, loves to try to govern from the opposition. And that's who you have to to, to beat politically in the, the court of public opinion in order to get some sort of law passed. Because, you know, the Democrats in Congress may have a majority uh, and the White House, uh, but they can't actually pass anything uh, because they're too chicken in order uh, unless they have public opinion on their side, unless they can say, look, the American people want us to mandate vaccines. Uh, so we will do it. We will not suffer too much uh, blowback in the next election and lose our grip on tenuous grip on power. So, yeah. yeah. And it seems like the Democrats are kind of creeping up on the idea of, of uh, pushing real hard for max- vaccine, not necessarily 100 percent for for society. Let's shift gears on, on the talk about jurors, because mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about the issue of their qualifications. Um, we have a problem in the American jury system. It's called the lying sack 
problem. Uh, a lot of jurors, and I know from personal experience, having tried a lot of cases over the years, yeah. uh, they just aren't completely forthcoming. Why not? If we're going to give them a vaccine. Yeah. Why not give them a lie detector test? Yeah. I mean, it's not like we're putting them in jail if it says, oh, you lied you yeah, know, about yeah. committing a crime. We're just saying, thank you for your service. Here's a lovely so parting gift. Here's, yeah. a, here's a Superior Court pen. <laughs> And, to, and leave right. now because so the machine you says you're that. a liar. Yeah, that's a good and 95% point. 95% of the time it's right, but we know it isn't always sure. right. We, but why not? We, you, you bring up a good point. This calls into a question. Basically, how the Supreme Court looks at these sorts of things, they have to balance the, po- the pluses and minuses uh, on, our, on restrictions of, of our liberty. And they say, with respect to free speech, they'd say that these have what they call different levels of scrutiny. So in your, your point is, yeah, we're not locking somebody up. We're not losing somebody's uh, freedom uh, by denying them the right to be on a jury. And therefore, we're raising the honesty level of jurors. Right. And because we're not denying them the right to, you know, uh, to walk free out of the jail, we can impose some restriction on them. We can give that person less due process. This is something that's 100% totally normal in the American legal system. We are always deciding how much process is due. Due process doesn't mean infinite process. And so you're absolutely right that due process might be that we do extra screening of jurors. For example, we don't allow jurors who uh, are biased uh, to be on juries. A lot of people might say, hold on, like, I want biased uh, jurors on my jury, right? If you if you get uh, somebody on, on trial for murder, right, and that person who gets up there uh, during voir dire, the jury selection process, and they say, I will never convict anyone of, of murder yeah, for any more reason. more likely drug offenses. Or sure, yeah, drug offenses. I'm, I'm a moral objection. I will never uh, convict somebody of a drug offense because I think drugs are morally nullification. good, right? And the uh, the uh, counsel for the, 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 the state says, uh, Your Honor, I'd like to dismiss juror number seven um, for cause uh, because they've declared that they will never obey the law uh, and, and, and go the way uh, that even if I prove it my entire case, they will, they will always try to. And then the, the judge result. who's allergic to dismissing anybody from the panel because things just might go haywire then tries to convince uh, the yeah. juror that he should have an open mind. And are, yeah. oh, can't you be open minded? Can't you be open minded, sir? Yeah, right. And the guy says, no, I can't be open minded. Now, why isn't uh, it appropriate for the person who's on trial to be able to say a representative slice of the American population includes a bunch of people who think drug offenses are fine? Because rules are rules. you got to follow the rules. That's a, a, a hallmark of the jury system and the, and the trial system. You have to agree that I will follow the law. And, for example, that includes death-qualified jurors. If somebody has a moral objection to the death penalty, uh, often uh, judges will dismiss you if during the voir dire section of the trial uh, you're asked, you know, is there any way you could vote— uh, yes on the death penalty. And if the guy says, absolutely not, I don't care if it's, you know, Charlie Manson times 100, I'm right. not voting for it. But the, you're out of there. The, the rules that determine what a jury looks like are that you need a, a jury of one's peers. That's the rules. And rules are rules. And jury of one's peers means a representative slice in, in some interpretations by judges right. who later come along and do judicial review, as we'll talk about. Uh, they've decided that that means some sort of representative slice of the population. No, you're right, but it, kind of de- it depends out. on how you define right. peer. So why, why wouldn't your peers include people? What if 99.9% of the population believed that drugs were fine mm-hmm. and there was no problem, but the laws were still bad and wrong and left on the books, which I would argue is probably more the closer to the reality than the one is weird idyllic situation we're describing and in that world of 99 percent 
the prosecutors, uh, the lawyer for the state who's par- trying to put you in jail for a drug offense, just strikes juror after juror after juror until he finds the 1% that actually still believes in putting people in jail for marijuana offenses. And then he moves on to the next one. And uh, strikes. So he has to go through 1,200 jurors, finds 12 jurors who will convict you, and then you're screwed. Well, I see your point, uh, but I think you are going to need to write your congressman to, to get the, the law passed. You're right. And another way that we're going to need to write a congressman is, is another variation I'd like to chat about is mm-hmm. not only are we going to be giving these jurors vaccines, not only are we going to be strapping them <laughs> to the polygraph machine, we're going to give them an IQ test. Ah. And here's why I think we need to give them an IQ I, can test. We double, we're doubling down on tests that don't actually work and represent anything scientifically. Well, okay, we'll work we'll hard to, yeah, yeah, to have a, yeah. uh, a, a neutral, holistic uh, test. Right. But no here's why. Thing, I, was yeah. watching, I was watching a show recently where they had a man on the street interview. Connor and a guy. Uh, was reporter. it Billy Eichner? Uh, no. Oh, um, I don't know the guy's name, but he was interviewing just folks on the street. And uh, he was asking them basic questions about the life and politics and history and so on. And these people, um, I submit to you, do not deserve to be on a jury. And therefore, why not give a basic test? Now, here are some answers. Now, admittedly, you know, they edited this, and I'm sure they got some brain surgeons that got some questions. Right, but those right. aren't fun. Yeah. Those aren't fun. And these are real people, though. They I don't, are I don't real care people. how hard he had to find. They are candidates for being on the jury. And here, true. here are some of the questions asked. Uh, what religion are Buddhist monks? And they gave four different answers. Israeli, Muslim, Catholic, and Islamic. Those God. were the guesses for re- the religion of Buddhist monks. Very deceptive question. Yeah, really sneaky. Very really sneaky. sneaky. Trick question. Trick question. Next one. Who won the Vietnam War? Young woman sort of giggled nervously. First she said, we did. She's American, by the way. She's not, you know, North, okay. North Vietnamese. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then uh, she nervously laughs and says, huh? Were we even in the Vietnam War? Now, would you want her ah, so if you were was, on trial? She for was your looking life? for heads. She was playing heads up. That was, that was smart. She was looking for the trick question. She was yeah. thinking to herself, "Yeah, well, I know I, I learned in my uh, cookie cutter American pageant uh, book in eighth grade American history that we went in there and we trounced the commies and we won the Vietnam War. Kick commie and when, butt. And when Nixon, Nixon pulled us out of there, uh, it was uh, with Vietnamization. A, yeah, f- flag waving and and really the job was just done. And so the South South Vietnamese just sort of mopped things up. And yeah, they lost the war after that, but it was probably oh, their fine, fault. Fine, you got an excuse for her. See if you can yeah. come up with an excuse for this next guy. Yeah. Young man was asked, who's Fidel Castro? And uh-huh. the guy said, uh, a singer? I mean, they got a district in San Francisco named the Castro. Castro district? There's probably a bunch of bars and clubs there. He's probably seen a live singer there and he Boy, thought, hey, you, that you, sounds great. You're, you're a born defense also, lawyer. Also, audio fidelity, he made the connection. I, it's a wrong answer, but I can I don't know how it. you did it, but you came up with an excuse for him. <laughs> Next challenge, even bigger. Yeah. Uh, two people were asked, tell us, how many sides does a triangle have? Hmm. First person answered with a pause and said, damn, four? <laughs> then the second person, a lady, a young lady, she says, there's no sides. Ooh. And then she changed one? Just the one side? Define side. Yeah. Lady, I'm on your side. I'll tell you what. There's no sides because there's no dispute as to how many edges a triangle has. We're all one side together agreeing uh, about the fact that it's four. Well, okay. So that's that's her excuse. <laughs> I have no answer for the guy who said four. What do you... I mean, come on. Like, if you say think it's a trick question, the answer's got to be three or six or what's a side? Is it like a line between vertexes, vertices? Like, what's, what's defined? But it can't be four. It can't be four. Next question to somebody who should never be allowed on a jury. Sure. Real question, real answer. Yeah. Star Wars. Was Star Wars based on a true story? And the answer, of course, was yes. 
Well, you want that person on a jury? I mean, based it's a complicated on... patent case. So, sir, do you think you're up to it uh, mentally? Oh, yeah. I have a question. Say I write a space opera about a man who is betrayed by his 12 disciples and uh, and he is, uh, you know, crucified by the space uh, uh, Romans. And then he rises from the dead after that. And then he uh, does some other stuff, too. If somebody said, is that space opera based on a true story? All right. It might be. All right, so you got your defense Based there as well. Based on a true story. Now, next one's going to be a challenge, I think, for you. Sure. Uh, the, the man was asked, Hiroshima and Nagasaki are famous for what? He thought about it and he said... Seafood. Judo wrestling. Now, I mean... I believe he meant to say sumo wrestling, but he said judo wrestling. I think both are wrong answers. Look, judo is a Japanese... like. I'm sure Hiroshima and Nagasaki are famous for many reasons. One of them may well be judo. If we don't know that, we can't say this guy's wrong. Oh, yeah, I can. I can. I'm saying he's wrong. Uh, you didn't say most famous for. And if they did, that's tragic that they're two, most famous for being bombed. That's, I two mean, maybe questions. among us. Two questions to go. How many Eiffel Towers are there in Paris? And the guy said, mm, about 10. So he wasn't willing to commit to an exact number, but 10 was was close. So That's a weird answer. 10,000 in gift shops? Yes. 10 exactly? Uh... Yeah, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. And final question, what is Al-Qaeda? What is Al-Qaeda? It was a 75-year-old man, and he looked at the interviewer, and he said, you listen to my answer. Al-Qaeda is a wing of the Masonic Order. Now, of course, for all we know, maybe he's right. So we shouldn't be making fun <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he, he was obviously very uh, emphatic about it. I dream of a, of a day when no American needs to know what al-Qaeda is. So this guy's halfway there. Uh, I think he's doing great. I think I've, I've made my case. Uh, intelligence test is required in order to have capable jurors. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about judicial review. Is it time to revisit the issue of whether the Supreme Court should be able to declare laws unconstitutional? Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. Yeah, and I'm Connor Oaks. So the um, idea of uh, the Supreme Court being able to strike down a law as unconstitutional is a pretty well-established element of our judicial system. I think uh, early 1800s, Marbury versus Madison and so on. And yet some people are saying... You know, uh, this is not a good idea. The Supreme Court is too powerful. I just look at this terrible six to three conservative majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think that it is in the cards, Connor, if, if the progressives have their way, uh, that we might actually chip away at the power of the Supreme Court to declare stuff unconstitutional? Well, no, I don't think it's in the cards because uh, the Supreme Court defined its own uh, jurisdiction in Marbury versus Madison. It wasn't the, it wasn't the you know, liberal or conservative majorities in the presidency in the Senate or anywhere else that uh, decided what the Supreme Court's function was and that their job was to decide um, the constitutionality. That is how in compliance with the Constitution a law is uh, as as it was written by the legislators. Um, or applied by the executive or whatever else. Um, that was something that came from the Supreme Court. And therefore, 
by the same token, and I'm not saying this is correct or legitimate, but by the same token, the only people who can redefine that are going to be the Supreme Court, which is currently a six to three majority, and they're certainly not interested in diluting their or own Or maybe power. a constitutional amendment could uh, change the situation. That would uh, change the rules, I but, suppose. But a constitutional, yes, you're right. A constitutional amendment would force them to, to redefine it. That's true. But of course, that will never happen. And so the possibility that a constitution, constitutional amendment passes in 2021 under any circumstances for any purpose, redefining anything at all, even uh, sunny days or nice, is not going to happen. Yeah. No I, one I, would I, ever be able to marshal the amount of support needed for an actual constitutional amendment in our current political climate. The idea of judicial review is itself, in terms of constitutionality of laws, is itself a silly construct. It is a way that the Supreme Court decided to define its power and it staked out a large amount of power. And by virtue of it being a legitimate institution that people came to respect, and they built that respect and power up over years and years, and they avoided conflicts so that there was no, you know, not enough public support for another branch of government, another source of governmental power to unseat them well, uh, or reform them or change them, then they have therefore, therefore, you know, successfully navigated things. Yeah, but when you say it's silly, I mean, I mean, look at the Proposition 8 in California right. that, that was passed and it said same sex marriage is wrong. It's bad. Yeah, right. Well, the Supreme Court comes along and says, no, that's wrong. Same sex marriage is legal. So it took a, you know, nine justices to uh, overturn the will of the majority. I mean, when I was a kid in 1964, we had Proposition 14. It was the fair housing proposition in California, passed yeah. by a big majority, as I recall. And it said, you may refuse to rent based on race. If you don't like somebody because they're black, you may say, I'm not going to rent to you. Yeah. That's what the people wanted. Right. The The court rejected it. The power of judicial review kicked in. Yes. So, I mean, you know, the definition of democracy is two wolves and a lamb deciding what's for dinner. Sometimes the wolves do something that's wrong and evil. Isn't the Supreme Court just another check on the tyranny of the majority? Yeah, but there's no... What, what I mean when I say that constitutionality review, um, what we call judicial review, deciding what's constitutional, is silly, is that the Supreme Court could have said that gay marriage was wrong on any grounds that they felt like. They could have said gay marriage is just morally wrong. They could have said get, that uh, housing discrimination is bad for the economy. They could have said anything because they constantly do say our opinion is based on these set of this set of facts and these opinions, and therefore we strike down this law or we allow this law to continue. It has nothing to do inherently with the Constitution, and constitutionality is a silly concept made up to say, well, we want to sort of launder our power, our political power, through this old-timey document that there's a lot of public support for, the Constitution, because it's done some really good things in the past, and therefore, we will sort of ride on the coattails of the Constitution and its legitimacy. But there's no reason why a court has to derive its power from comparing any current law to the, the, the law as defined by the Constitution constitution from a long, long time ago. They could just say, this is what's good for society. This is what's good for the future for you and your kids and, and everybody and makes everybody like if the constitution said it, if, if the if, if we passed a constitutional amendment that said uh, we should all just give up and die to COVID and nobody should get vaccinated. If, if somehow we marshaled enough political support for that, right, the wolves won. 
and and an insane misinformation campaign uh, came came through. Yeah, we would want the Supreme Court as the last bastion in my hypothetical to be able to turn the tide. But somehow they couldn't because it, they're stuck with the Constitution. Exactly, and therefore we all know that we don't actually want to be bound by the Constitution because the Constitution uh, has a bunch of bad, 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 real bad, no good, very bad stuff in it. Like the three-fifths compromise. Right, but we do want, like the idea of checks and balances. I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. Riddled, uh, absolutely. The Constitution is riddled with them, and you know, a lot of people uh, are very much in, in favor of, of the construct. Yeah. Hey, let's go to our last topic, which is, uh, has the ACLU gone soft on the First Amendment? So a lot of people are wondering, whatever happened to the ACLU in this era of polarization? It's not like they're on milk cartons, but some people say they've changed big time. A symbol of their commitment to free speech at just about any cost was the ACLU. ACLU used defense in the 70s of the right of Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois, where a lot of Holocaust survivors lived. Now, the ACLU's lead lawyer, uh, David Goldberger, who was Jewish, supported the Nazis' right to demonstrate. Today, he's been interviewed by the New York Times and others. He's dismayed by the fact that the group is no longer defending everybody's right to express themselves. Instead, Mm -hmm. the the view seems to be that people who express far-right views, for example, don't deserve constitutional protection. They say people of color experience offensive speech more viscerally than white people. College students are stopping right-wing speakers from appearing on campuses saying their speech is the equivalent of violence, and thus they say violence in return is justified, and at a minimum, they should not be allowed to take the stage. So the ACLU has not exactly been front and center opposing this. Uh, Is a progressive, are you uh, unhappy with what the ACLU has been up to? Well, no, I I would say that the ACLU takes some objectionable positions sometimes um, in the name of, you know, extreme uh, protections of people's civil liberties. I think that the ACLU is not it doesn't operate in a vacuum. Right. All the things you're describing are contentious political issues with complicated answers. And the ACLU has to decide which side of this issue, if any, infringes on people's civil liberties and to what degree, which side needs us to step in. Now, if the Nazis are marching through Skokie, Illinois, and most Americans are going, wow, it's kind of like right after World War II, and this is really messed up, and and, uh, we should probably just, you know, stop people from expressing free speech that's full of ideas we really don't like. And at that point, maybe Nazism uh, in, uh, in America um, was uh, was sort of on the run because of World War II. It wasn't really because we were all so incredibly racist, uh, as we are still. Uh, but I'll say this. If the ACLU has to defend the people that, that no one else wants to defend, they're kind of like the public defenders in that way. Um, when far-right political power surges and you get something like Mitch McConnell running the country, a 6-3 majority in the Supreme Court, and Donald Trump uh, in public office, as he was uh, for four years. The ACLU has to stem the tide of Nazism that basically uh, the undercurrent that ran through the American political right. So, of course, they're going to oppose a lot of far right uh, political positions because they have to. Right. They have to. uh they have to do those, take those positions because the country is surging in that direction, right? So they're going to be a stop, you know, a, 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 a stop against that potentially happening. So yeah, we might see the uh, the ACLU take what look like left 
uh, positions in many cases um, that I would say <laughs> venture to say that that is because most of the time it is the left that actually is concerned with American civil liberties in this country. But so, that, that's just my opinion. So, you know, it's, it's so frustrating dealing with these uh, situations, you know, whether they're hypothetical or real. And the, the Skokie thing was real. Another real one that was just so disgusting several years ago was this Baptist church, I think Westboro Baptist Church, yeah. and their thing, their shtick was they'd show up at the funerals yeah. of soldiers who'd been killed, American soldiers who'd been killed in action. Yeah. And they would start ranting about gays. Yeah. And, and saying the offensive idea things. Was, the idea was they weren't, it wasn't like they researched and found, oh, this fallen soldier was gay. So, oh, no, no, it, it was just, just that the U.S. Yeah. military coddled gays and so on. No, no, it was just that they wanted to, it wasn't even, had nothing to do, it was just, we are going to get under your skin, we're going to get uh, eyes on our on our right. banners, we're just going to hijack the cameras, we're going to show up in a place that, that makes you unhappy. In the Supreme, I think it went up to the Supreme Court and the court said, hey, we hate it, but we're saying they right. have a right to disrupt the funerals. And yeah. I'm thinking... Why is, do they have that right? The sound truck by the politician right. uh, at 3 a.m. at, at uh, 2,000 de- decibels is illegal. Yeah. We're, oh, it's okay to restrict that. Yep. So the right of free speech, even political speech, is not absolute. Yeah. Why would it not be okay to carve out you know, a sound truck-like exception for these these funerals and yet the court was not prepared to do it yeah i mean it's a it's a situation where as we actually early mentioned earlier in this podcast it's specifically about uh, the court interprets these cases specifically through these different levels of scrutiny, and they say things like time, place, and manner restrictions are one category, um, and those uh, have a certain you know type of scrutiny. And then they have content restrictions, uh, and those have you know another type of scrutiny. Um, if you want to you know, censor somebody's uh, political speech based on the content of their political speech, that's a really, 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 really high bar. It's really hard to do that. You really shouldn't be able to do that. If you're going to allow a leftist to talk, you should also be allowing a right, uh, a, a right-leaning person to talk uh, in the same sort of situation. But in terms of time, place, and manner restrictions, we have lots of, like you said, sound truck, 2 a.m. in a residential neighborhood. I can Why do we care more about sleep and we yeah. make it illegal to interrupt 3 a.m. sleep yeah. than a, a, a hallowed ceremony for a fallen American soldier? Yeah, I mean, if uh, I agree with you and it's, it's very offensive, but you can have you can have a, a, uh, a funeral on private property. And the court has to acknowledge that, well, if you if you start drawing lines and saying you can't protest at funerals at all, maybe you can't protest. Uh, uh, the the Iraq War at a, uh, the the soldiers a soldier's funeral. Maybe you can't protest at a soldier's funeral within a hundred feet or five hundred feet or a thousand feet or two thousand feet. And maybe it's very easy to glom onto uh, the sort of like a valor of the American military to get some really bad outcomes in your court cases, where you start saying, okay, you can't uh, do this thing because it offends people who feel really strongly about how great the military is. And that's a slippery slope. And these slippery slopes are what uh, we're you know constantly worried about. And the ACLU uh, have classically been not always correct, but have classically been champions for deciding where those slippery slopes are going to go and saying we have to take a stand on this case because it could go a really bad and dangerous place in the future. I agree with you that there should be some way to protect people who are just having to try to have funerals uh, from uh, from harassment by other people. But 
We live in a very complicated society where people are interacting with each other all the time in different contexts. And there are a lot, you can come up with a lot of different worlds. Yeah, if only we didn't live in that uh, place uh, called Pleasantville from the movie. Remember that? Yeah. That would be pleasant. It was for a while until it was torn apart. Got complicated. That that Reese Witherspoon's always causing trouble. Yeah. Okay, we're going to talk now about how uh, maybe living in Bel Air isn't all that wonderful after all. It's the fanciest part of Los Angeles. Everybody wants to live in Bel Air, right? That's true, sure. But a nude bird burglar broke into a Bel Air home. Bel Air homeowner was in shock after coming face to face with a violent naked man who broke into the house and killed the family pets. Matt Sabs was alone Thursday God. afternoon when his wife called to tell him that security cameras showed a nude man breaking into their home. I see a man downstairs eye to eye immediately. I raised my voice, pointed at him and said, what are you doing? So Sabs told the local Fox TV station. Uh, he didn't leave. He looked at me and said, this is my house. What are you doing here? So I think the, the nude guy was using the old the best defense is a good, good offense. offense after all he is nude yeah and he's in the house what are the chances that it's anything other than his own home have Makes you sense. ever seen anybody running around naked except in their own well, house well in the orgies that i regularly attend yes okay, but there's an other, outside of that specific circumstance no i haven't yeah very very strange it's or, very convincing the cops show up there's a nude guy and a closed guy and yeah. the nude guy says this is my house who are you gonna believe he killed the parakeets so uh oh but he's uh, he's in jail now so that's the good news. At last, uh, we've come to uh, guess the verdict, Connor. Um, this is our feature every week. We give Connor uh, some uh, facts about a real-life case, and he gets to guess who wins. Uh, are you ready? Oh, yeah. Have you girded your loins? They're fully girded. Fairly girded? Okay. Inmates at the Vancouver, Washington County Jail have sued to prevent the serving of Nutraloaf. What is Nutraloaf, you say? It's a beige casserole. Some people say beige. I say beige. Uh, it consists of beef or chicken chunks, apples, and eggs. A nine-ounce slab is a complete meal. Nice. Jail officials defended the loaf-style meal, saying they prevent the prisoners from assaulting each other with chicken bones or celery stalks. Celery I think stalks. that's there was the Night Stalker, so that's probably right, where, where right, that came right, from. Right, right. So, uh, Connor, uh, you are presented with this uh, this case. Who do you think won? The inmates suing to stop the serving of neutral loaf or the jail officials? So, I would say that if I were in this position as the judge, I would have to take make a ruling that takes into account the fact that prisoners in jails are human beings, and that our Eighth Amendment right against cruel and unusual punishment uh, should reflect the fact that jail serves many purposes. It is not simply punitive, and every aspect of jail should not be designed to be punitive. We should not say, well, if they're in jail, they shouldn't be able to read. They shouldn't be able to uh, converse and socialize with one another. We, we shouldn't, they shouldn't be happy. They should be suffering in jail. That is the wrong way to approach jail. So I think that they, uh, the prisoners, uh, should probably win because I would have to, when, if I were making the decision, take into account the fact that this sounds friggin' gross. Well, the judge actually ruled for the jail. He ruled that the That's uh, where I was going. neutral loaf was not cruel and unusual punishment. But I made it. I made it. I think uh, there was even a taste test there in open court. I, I made a guess. Rubbed of, his tummy and said, you know, <laughs> this delicious. just ain't that bad. I, 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 I'll say that I made a, a guess that was based on hope, yeah. uh, not not based on what I expected the outcome to be. And you're still be. batting well over 500. Pretty good. So you're batting average. I'll take is, that loss as, on principle. <laughs> Next time on Too Many Lawyers, we're going to ask if it's time to revisit affirmative action. You don't want to miss that. Have a great week. See you next time on Too Many Lawyers.
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.